Welcome to our podcast series on socially just and culturally responsive assessment. Today, Dr. Gavin Henning, President of CAS, and I, Ann Lundquist, Assistant Vice President at Campus Labs, are talking with Leslie D'Souza, Manager for Student Affairs Communications at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. We're talking with Leslie about how she has been putting the intersection between socially just assessment decolonization and assessment into practice, personally, professionally, and organizationally on her campus. Leslie, uh, welcome to our podcast to talk a little bit about the intersection connection between assessment and social justice. Um, But before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Leslie D'Souza. I'm the Manager of Communications and Assessment at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology in Oshawa, Ontario. Um, and in, in introducing myself, it's also really important for me to introduce uh, the land that I'm on right now. Uh, and so the university is proud to acknowledge the lands and people of the Mississaugas of Skugog Island First Nation, which is covered under the Williams Treaties. Uh, I'm situated on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas, which is a branch of the Greater Anishinaabeg Nation and includes the Algonquin Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi. Uh, so acknowledging the land is a really important way for us to start this conversation where we're going to talk about decolonization and social justice. That's great. Um, so Leslie, thanks so much for being with us. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how you define decolonization? And and I think maybe as a follow-up, how do you think that it is similar or different from social justice? Oh, it's, and that's a huge question and there's a lot of nuance there. I think they're incredibly interrelated. Um, I see social justice as everything that encompasses how people can interact with their society on an individual level with justice and fairness, uh, you know, equitable access to wealth and service and um, and, and social privilege. Uh, and, and then I see decolonization as kind of the removal of foreign dominion over Indigenous people and land. So it's real. that one is really focusing in on the deconstruction and really the identification of how imperialism has influenced the fabric of the society and then how that in turn privileges different groups over others. Um, so you, it's, I don't think you can have social justice without acknowledging decolonization. Um, and decolonization has social justice built into the fabric of how we actually go about decolonizing. So I know one of the examples of, of decolonization that, that often gets um, identified is India's independence after beca- being a colony of Britain for so long. And so the, all of the process and the, the social process that led to and then that followed up on that act of independence and, and how that played out um, really is, is basically what we're talking about. <laughs> in terms of decolonization. But you can see how that changed social things for different groups within India after that took place. And Leslie, can you talk a little bit about the context of the the conversation around decolonization in Canada, because it's different than the conversation that we're having here in the United States. We talk about social justice, equity, inclusion, um, those types of terms and concepts, but we really don't talk about decolonization a lot. So for some people listening, they may not understand the broader context, the broader Canadian context, and why this is important for some of the work that you're doing in Canada. Mm -hmm. 
for sure. So uh, in Canada, Canada was a, a, a British colony in terms of how its government was structured and it kind of came into being in 1867. So when we celebrate Canada Day, we're really talking about celebrating that that act in 1867, but there were thousands of years of history before that and people's living on this land before that that aren't acknowledged when we celebrate that. So decolonizing in a Canadian context really speaks to the relationships and treaties that were created between um, set, settling people from from Britain and France and um, how they how they built relationship with a variety of different indigenous cultures in in what we now call Canada. Uh, and and I think that the important thing to acknowledge about this, and, and we've even been struggling with this in a Canadian context, is that there is no one Indigenous people. It's uh, There are hundreds of different languages, hundreds of different um, groups of people and communities of Indigenous people who have very different and unique cultures. So each, each of these different peoples in, in certain cases signed treaties with settlers and came to certain agreements over how the use of their own land and resources would be shared uh, with people who were coming to their land from, from overseas. And so in some cases, when we you'll hear the word unceded in some cases in Canada, and unceded just means that there was never a treaty, uh, We never that the Indigenous peoples on that land never agreed to share it with uh, settling people, and yet we still see that all of the land is now called Canada, which is a, a colony of Britain. So in Canada, it's really, it's us coming to the realization of tr the truth of colonization here, what that looks like for our indigenous peoples now and, and how they feel disenfranchised by, um, by, the, by the crown, which is what we call our state, um, and, and how we can then acknowledge that truth and move to a place where we can reconcile together. How can we move forward together as a, as a group of people now living on this land? So I know that a lot, uh, in some cases I've heard people push back and say like, well, what do we do? Do we, do we just leave? Do we have to give back the land? Like, how do we do that? We can't do that now. And, and that's kind of universally acknowledged. Like we can't really all leave the land now, but we have to acknowledge the truth of the damage that has been done um, and, and the systemic damage that, that was intentionally done uh, to kind of silence and oppress Indigenous peoples so that we could benefit from the resources that they had been in relationship with those thousands of years. Uh, so in Canada, that has a lot of, that has a lot of, um, there are a lot of dimensions to that. And the one that I have mostly been focused on is in education and um, I think education in some ways is, is the key to really coming to a place of reconciliation by educating our children about the, the true history of our country and, and some of the, the darker parts of that history. So we had um, a what we call the residential schooling system where uh, Indigenous children were taken from their parents and um, in some cases, you know, un unwillingly uh, and put into remote schooling options, sometimes hundreds of miles away from their families, and then kind of forcibly educated and punished if they if they spoke their own language, if they tried to engage in cultural practices. The goal of this was in some ways to, to commit cultural genocide, really to erase that identity uh, as indigenous people to force assimilation into the new colony. Uh, and that did an incredible amount of damage. Um, those those schools in many in many cases were uh, in some there was horrible abuse that took place at some of them um, 
and just universal damage by taking children away from their, their parents and disconnecting them from their culture. Uh, so we're we're coming to grips with what, what that means and with with how our education system right now is is colonized and is perpetuating some of these damaging ways of thinking um, and trying to undo some of that damage and and build that relationship back again. Thanks, Leslie. It's, it's really helpful for me too. I know you and I've talked a little bit about this, but it helps expand my understanding. I um, mean, we certainly could do some talking conversation about this here in the United States and what that impact that that is. Um, and I hope we will soon. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to um, go out to the next question I had for you. Um, when and how did you begin thinking about the connection between social justice, decolonization and assessment? Um, well, I think I, I probably came from a lens of social justice early in my career. Um, I, I went to grad school for student affairs and higher education, and I know that equity and diversity and inclusion were, were very big threads that were tied through my entire educational history. And I, I went to the University of Guelph in Ontario, and I remember uh, becoming a residence assistant there and, and also going through trainings that were starting to teach me about um, the different ways that that we can be supportive of diverse individuals and what that means and and how maybe we are unconsciously not supportive of diversity uh, so that was it's been going back a long time from a social justice uh, standpoint and then I, I was working in areas like uh, orientation and, and a number of different institutions and then I, I actually uh, moved into Centennial College to work which is in part of the greater Toronto area which is an incredibly diverse uh, population at that college and then from there to Ryerson University which is again a, a very very diverse population so at the University of Guelph and at Bowling Green State University I was learning about diversity and learning about social justice but still in an environment that was predominantly white but when I started working at these institutions I was in a very diverse environment which which really changed a lot of things for me uh, because I was building lots of relationships with people who had experienced different things growing up than I had and my, and my norms were very disrupted uh, which was a which was a good thing um, and then I, I started to develop an interest in assessment um, I think that harkened back kind of to my undergraduate because I did my undergrad in biology and so I was always bringing this kind of lens of experimental design to the work that I was doing in orientation and mentoring and whatnot uh, so I'd always been fascinated by, you know, how, how can you write a better survey? How can you get better data to bring us closer to understanding the impact of our work? Uh, so that that became a long interest and in I kind of decided, I figured out there was a discipline in assessment and, and kind of dove into that. And that led to this really cool job at Ryerson called, where I was the manager of student affairs storytelling. And really that job title kind of led me down this rabbit hole of, of understanding what storytelling is and how it manifests in our work and, and how we relate as humans using stories uh, and, and the relationship between storytelling and assessment. Well, as soon as you start to really delve into learning about storytelling, you inevitably end up learning about Indigenous pedagogy. Because the, the fundamental fact is that storytelling is the oldest thing that we do on the planet as people. And that every culture on the planet has, has a an ethic of storytelling built into it. And so indigenous pedagogy is built on a, a core of storytelling as a teaching tool, a tool for change. Um, and I think that that was really what started to break down the barriers I had kind of erected myself uh, that kept me from learning more about um, indigenous communities in Canada. And, and I started to understand that this isn't, this isn't something that people who work 
in diversity have to do. This is something we all have to do. We all have to learn about Indigenous communities and understand our relationship with them because that is our duty in our countries, uh, especially where colonization is, is at play. So I think that it's been a long road with lots of different threads that have played in and it, it's looking back, it feels almost intentional, but when you, when you finally get here, you start to realize these connections that started maybe even decades back. Thank you so much, Leslie. I have a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, so I'm really fascinated by this. And I long thought that there's a deep connection between storytelling and assessment, but not a lot, a lot of people see it that way. So yeah. I mean, I'm interested to hear you talk about that. So, yeah. um, so you know, that's I'm I'm really um, interested in that personal journey that you had, and and we've been talking to quite a few people in the field. So I'm also curious about your thoughts about just in student affairs in general, how do you see that relationship between say social justice and decolonization and those concepts, equity, diversity and inclusion and mm -hmm. the assessment world? Like mm -hmm. how close together are they? How far apart are they? Or what, what do you see as the relationship? Well, I think assessment is really just our, the ways of knowing. How do we, what ways of knowing do we employ to try and understand different problems? And so I think the connection between social justice, decolonization, equity, and assessment really, like, de social justice and decolonization we've already talked about. And in student affairs, I think that we started to see there are different educational outcomes depending on different amounts of privilege in our society. And so that's that's not right. And, and we started to tackle that and understand that different groups require different levels of support and different kinds of support uh, contextualized in different ways that are relevant to the barriers that they're facing. So once you start to explore problems that way, diversity and equity become a natural uh, emphasis for people who are working to support students in their educational journey. Well, an assessment plays into that. An assessment has a, a very long and storied and kind of problematic history with um, social justice and decolonization. When you look at the history of say ethnography and sociology, um, research being done by Western researchers who kind of um, dive it, parachute in and, and research indigenous or marginalized communities um, without reciprocation, without giving much back and then coming away and maybe not fully understanding exactly what they were seeing and then pronouncing judgment on what it meant. Um, and, and some of those things were very damaging and caused a lot of problems. Uh, so I think that there, there are issues that we have embedded into how we assess and what we value in assessment, the ways of knowing that we value over other ways of knowing. Um, some of those things perpetuate social justice and decolonization. So if we're not conscious of how to integrate equity, diversity, and decolonization into our assessment practices, we could inadvertently be reinforcing colonization and reinforcing inequity based on how we use our data. Um, and I see, I see that in this kind of hierarchy of value that we place on uh, quantitative ways of knowing over qualitative in, in many cases. So I, I know that there's been um, conversation around, you know, well, qualitative information or stories, narratives, they're not generalizable, that we can't find trends and patterns the same way that we can in quantitative ways of knowing. But the issue there is that quantitative ways of knowing can never really tell you why something is happening. So it's, these are really just different ways of knowing. One is it better than the other? And qualitative ways of knowing can be empirical. So it, I think it's really just leveling the playing field and understanding that there is no such thing as a perfect way to do assessment, but there are intentional choices we can make and in 
uh, conducting assessment from a lens of equity, inclusion, decolonization, and social justice. And, and the stories that we share as a result of the assessments we do have just as much importance as the assessments themselves. So whose voices are we amplifying when we share stories of assessment? Where do those reports go? Do we share data back with our own students? How does that happen? How are we empowering and democratizing the assessments and the data that we collect with those who we collect it from? And I think once we start to look at those questions and problems, we can start to understand how assessment is a very key tool in approaching decolonization and social justice. Does that kind of answer that question? Kind of went off on a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and the, you've talked about, the, the next question I have is really about the role of assessment in decolonization. And you talked a little bit about the, the idea of decolonization and how do we, in social justice, how we build that into assessment. But do you see a, a possible or a way that we can use assessment as a tool um, for social justice and decolonization? And if so, what does that look like or how that can that be done? Yeah, definitely. Well, so just as much as assessment is can reinforce colonization, uh, it can also be a key tool in deconstructing it. So I think that you, we have to look at the ways of knowing that we're using, who is contributing to those data sets, and who is also in control of conducting those assessments. So representation in samples is important, but also representation in researchers. How are we, how are we promoting uh, people into the assessment discipline? Who's here and who is conducting these assessments? Because are the lenses that we bring and the representation that we have at this level will affect how, what kinds of questions we ask, how we analyze the data, and how we share those stories. Um, and the other piece there too is that once we have an insight, once we have data that, that shows us something, how does that story get shared and who does it get shared from? Uh, and, and who receives credit for that information. So I think that when we, when we start looking at that side of it, we can start to see how we have a lot to learn from indigenous pedagogy and, and understanding how methodology and the, the logic that we use behind assessment may have, where is it being informed from? Is it being informed from a, um, a white culture space, a Western culture space, or are we trying to deconstruct that by learning more about indigenous pedagogy and learning more about how um, research can be a circular process and how we can be involving uh, those who are subjects in the research in the in the analysis stage or in the interpretation stage even like how are we how are we making this a fully born relationship between those who are conducting research and those who are having research conducted on their experience does that kind of get at that yeah, and I have a follow-up question. So um, when we were talking about this, uh, I think it was probably last year, there were a couple authors you suggested I, I read, and one was Sean Wilson. And yes. Sean Wilson brought a book called Research of Ceremony. Well, I, we were lucky enough to have him uh, uh, Skype in again to our doctoral research class. We just had him in our class on Friday night. And he talked about indigenous paradigms. And the big focus from his perspective is this um, idea of relationality and relational accountability. And that's really the basis for an indigenous paradigm. When we think about that, that, that idea, that concept, how do you see that integrated or how does it play out in the assessment process? Um, I haven't really thought about it to this point, but I, I suspect you might have already. So do you, do you see that connection between relationality in the assessment process and as a way of maybe integrating some um, indigenous perspectives in the way we do assessment here in the West? 
Yeah, definitely. I um, And I, I don't even know if I've been able to go down a really uh, deep hole yet thinking about exactly what the implications for our assessment practices are. But I, I think I'm I'm constantly trying to think about how I'm in relationship with the audience that, that we're assessing. Well, how It's really easy for us in assessment to be removed, say, from the students that we're trying to study. How do we immerse ourselves in those spaces and understand their experience beyond maybe the individual data points we're collecting? Because those are just kind of pinpoint indicators in that space, and we could be missing a much larger dimension of the story. And the, one of the best ways to do that is to build a relationship with them so that you personally feel invested and empathize, or empathizing, but also to bring those students into the process. So one of the things that I had been investigating, and I, I think they're doing it now um, is at, at Ryerson, is they've created opportunities for students to be part of a research team that conducts assessments in student affairs. So students are part of now crafting and creating the tools and techniques that are going to be used to study their fellow students and, and the student experience. And it's really cool. Things change when you, when you, you write a survey with a student. Um, a survey that I write, I, I use wording that makes sense to me. I use things that come from my own lived experience. And when a student reads it, they may take completely different meaning from it. Uh, so I think that there are even things as simple as that, you know, just being in relationship with the audience so that you know that you're asking questions of them that they are going to understand and be able to answer as clearly as they can and, and know how you're going to use that data for their benefit. So I know that we, I, there's a lot of conversations about data hoarding and, you know, taking the pledge to not hoard your data, but I, I feel like there's really a covenant of trust that we enter into with students when we, when we ask them for information and they provide it in any fashion, uh, that they are entrusting us to use that information to make their experiences better. And so we have to think carefully about how we're doing that. And it's really hard to make their experiences better if they aren't present in the process. So I think relationality has everything to do with how we decolonize our assessment practices. Uh, it, under no circumstances should we be kind of like helicoptering over our, our audiences and, and trying to pick out insights without fully connecting with them. I think that sometimes in assessment, we can tend to focus so much on being objective that we lose sight of the fact that assessment should be an emotional process too. You should feel connected with the people who you're trying to understand. Uh, because at the at our core, the way that humans understand is an emotional understanding. We, we form emotional connections with each other, and that has to be part of a good assessment process. Um, but at the same time, there are, there is value in, in that quantitative information to help us question when our emotional truths might not be based in real truth. Um, so I think it, it's balancing it's balancing things and making sure you're in that relationship with who you're studying, but also trying to help yourself question your own biases and and try to help yourself remove your remove maybe some of the lenses that are the ones you don't know are there. Um, the thing like we're we're all part of this colonized system now, so it's really hard for us to even see it. Um, it's it's very invisible until you start to really pick apart and understand, okay, wow, I, now I can actually see why there are all kinds of systems in government and education and everything that are, are pulling certain people up and pushing others down. And we have to know those things before we can really start to understand how assessment plays into that and then use assessment intentionally to, to decolonize. Um, and, and I appreciate great. that, Leslie. I was I was thinking about um, some of the things you talked about in, in working in relationship with with students, and I think I've seen it play out on my campus working with faculty. 
Um, mm -hmm. I last year I worked with the um, to develop a program review process. And when we shared with faculty to get their input, we realized pretty quickly um, the humanities folks said, I don't, I don't think in tables and in boxes. I think it works. <laughs> and so we realized, oh, shoot, we really need to go back and rethink this. And so when we were more collaborative in our program review process, we came up with a system that worked for everybody and I think was better in the long run. Um, and I think the, the really good byproduct. So not only does this uh, concept of working in relationship lead to better assessment processes, but also, as you alluded to, it helps us um, really kind of remove some of that power in terms mm -hmm. of who gets to control that information, both the collection of it and possibly the use. Yeah, well, and I think that kind of focuses right in on the whole issue of colonization, which is is based in this kind of imperialist sort of approach of, you know, somebody has dominion over somebody else or dominion over resources and and this idea that somebody is superior to anybody else you know that there's a lot of um there's a lot of symbolism in indigenous pedagogy around the circle as a, as a sacred uh thing to use and and the fact that it removes hierarchy you know because nobody is more important than anybody else and and you see that in learning about indigenous relationships with the land you know the land isn't isn't a, a resource for indigenous peoples, it's they are in relationship with it. It's uh, in many cases, um, one of the elders that I spoke to was talking about the land is is their mother, and so how do you treat your mother? You you there's a different way of being with the land when you think of it that way, and so it's really it's really shifting these mindsets to understand that I am not more important than anyone else, and my pursuit of power uh, is damaging to other people, and so that makes it wrong. In, in, all, in a lot of the spaces that we're using data to gain power or to um, reinforce power. Thank you, Leslie. I think um, th you've kind of touched a lot on one of the last questions that I think we have, which is, <laughs> no, it's great because we're, we, Gavin and I have been talking uh, with each other and with others about this idea of um, personal readiness and then you know organizational readiness say on a campus or at an institution uh, to mm -hmm. to bring these conversations together and to think about diversity equity inclusion social justice decolonization and assessment like how, all the things you've you've really helped um illuminate today so you've i think touched quite a bit on that idea of your personal readiness and what you can do and some of it is a lens or a, a mindset or just awareness and coming to mm -hmm. awareness um, but I'd love to know if there's any other particular, say, um, strategies or skills that might come along with that. And then I guess my second part is, how do we put that into practice from an organizational perspective, say, mm -hmm. on a campus, right? What can we do as student affairs practitioners or in the higher ed space um, to help others um, along their journeys and also to bring our organizations into a better practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um that's that's really the core issue really <laughs> uh, so I I think that one of the things I've learned is that we, we can't get so attached to our systems and processes um, that if we're so attached to those procedures and, and policies that we can't help a student in need of help that's a problem and and that's that's what's at the core of colonization. You know that that the process or the power, the procedure is more important than a, than a person. And so, if a student walks into somebody's office and says, um, "I can't, I can't meet this deadline," or "I can't complete this this piece of paperwork," 
there's some issue there and and we aren't able to say okay let's find another way that's that's a big problem so i think how we do assessment can't be so rigid that we are unwilling to listen and change based on the story of possibly one person um, because one person's truth is is going to be true for many people so i Organizationally, we're doing some things uh, at, at the university here, which uh, I'm really proud of. So one of the things that, that I was able to participate in was uh, helping to create an alternative admissions process for Indigenous students, recognizing that in many cases, Indigenous students have faced um, many more barriers to academic performance in, in schooling, access to education, uh, access to funding all kinds of these things that, that play into the colonized experience they have before they even get to university. How can we create an alternative process for them to get here, recognizing that their GPAs may not be reflective of their potential to succeed in university. So we came up with a process that was a holistic rubric um, where we, we asked students to submit written letters, they submit a personal statement, they tell their story um, and we make space for that, for them to write out what, what it is they want to do, what do they hope to do, how are they prepared to do it, and, and what barriers and challenges have they overcome to get to where they are right now. Uh, and we've had students who have been admitted into our nursing program um, and several other programs on campus based on that alternative process. So I'm really proud of that because that's, that's real life things now that, that have changed uh, an experience for a student who now is able to enter into a program that they may not have otherwise been able to do. Um, and, and that was just using a, a different way of looking at the problem and a different assessment tool that could help us categorize some of the responses that we were having in, in a human way. Um, so I think things like that, like creating alternative paths, creating space for people to be humans and to, to activate empathy amongst people who are in decision-making positions and the, the people that they're hoping to serve. Uh, and assessment can do that really, really well when we put, when we put our minds to it. Oh, thank you. That's a great example. I think um, folks um, in the field right now are really hungry for specific examples. So I think there's um, an increased awareness that this conversation is happening and and that uh, the concepts that we're talking about are important, but they can feel kind of abstract or mm -hmm. um, academic. Um, and I was in a grad school class doing a, um, a guest lecture and one of the grad students raised their hand and said, well, this is all very interesting, but what about me? I'm a grad student and I want to know what's one practical thing I can do, you know, in my own work or as I move into the profession. So I think um, you've given us some good ideas today for some of those practical things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite things about that process that we created is that we share the rubric with the students before they even apply. So the students know exactly what we're looking for. It's not a secret. I think that's, which is a great best practice for rubrics. So yes. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. Right. Great. Well, we really appreciate your time today. It's, I know it's given me a lot to think about. Um, we're excited to have um, um, this conversation with so many different people, and and uh, we appreciate uh, all of the work you're doing in the field, and and also sharing your ideas with us today. So thank you very much, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Leslie.